clubhouse. Was it because I changed my name? Because I left? Or was it because I'm nothing like you and you can't stand it? How you wish that that were true. My boy, I have made mistakes. But not this. I never called Remington Academy. I never agreed with your mother's boarding school experiment. But I loved my son. Still do. Why should I believe you? Because you are the one person I cannot hurt. Even when my own freedom depended on Welcome to The Surgeon Files, your unofficially official Prodigal Son podcast. I'm Mike Caputo. And I'm Sheila McGann. Tonight we're talking about episode three of season two, Alma Mater. Alma Mater was written tonight by Lisa Randolph and was directed by Omar, I hope I'm saying this right, Omar Madha. That's how I was saying it in my head. A little fun fact about Lisa Randolph. This is actually her fourth episode of Prodigal Son that she's written. And one of them, she so obviously this the first one of season two, so she wrote three episodes in season one. One of them was Internal Affairs, which is one of my favorite Prodigal Son episodes. Fun fact about Omar Madha, he directed The Trip, which is um, from 2019, Prodigal Son season one. And that's the one where Malcolm took the uh, cocaine bath and went undercover with Danny. Uh, very fun. I, I think that was like episode five, maybe? Something like that. It's called The Trip. I'm not yeah. sure which episode number it is, but... Uh, yeah. The Trip. Yeah, so uh, so we have some experienced prodigies at the helming this episode again. So um, there were, there like I said, there were three episodes that Lisa directed in season one. Internal Affairs was my favorite of them, but then she also directed the second to last episode, the penultimate episode of season one, uh, The Professionals, uh, episode 19. Oh, very so, cool. Yeah, and you know, obviously the creator Chris and Sam, uh, Chris Fedak and Sam Sclaver wrote episode 20. So, you know, pretty big shoes, you know, that they're handing her to handle these episodes. I believe this is the first one she has the sole writing credit on. So that's a pretty big, uh, pretty big step also. Well, I like this episode. Anytime you give me an origin story, I am here for it. Right. It's what draws you in. It's what makes you care about the characters when you delve into their actual backstory and, and it really fleshes them out, makes them a 3D character. Well, speaking of characters on the show, if you've listened to our podcast before, you may know that we tend to end the episodes with what we call Adresa Corner, catching up on our favorite medical examiner, you know, because oftentimes Adresa just has these kind of cameos in episodes where she kind of comes in, blows us all away with something very funny or something very oddball and then just slips back into the shadows. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so so all the times it's not you know she doesn't have a lot of recurring storylines that make sense to talk about and as far as that goes but it's always fun to catch up with her well sheila and dear listeners tonight be sure to stick around until we're done talking and breaking down this episode because we have an exclusive interview to bring you with dr adresa tanaka herself keiko again i'm sorry i was squealing before but yay 
I mean, <laughs> Keiko is uh, amazing. I know people who have spoken to her before from her Gilmore Girl days, and she's she's just super cool. If you follow her on social media, she has great posts. She's uh, just a ton of fun to talk to. So very looking forward to bringing you guys that interview tonight. Yes, definitely. And then also, before we get started, we also have a Spotify playlist with the same name as this podcast, Your Surgeon Files. And it's just some mood music to bring you through the time in between the episodes and in between our episodes. So this way you have something prodigy like to keep you company. Uh, by Hopefully by the time this episode goes live, we'll have Wham's Wake Me Up, parentheses before you go-go, added to it. I was very much excited to be adding that to the uh, the, the pre-playlist list that I keep. So that's why I, I know what I've added. I know what I need to add. So I don't give any spoilers ahead of the episode drop. So. I, I wonder if this was a paid product placement with Peloton uh, uh, to have Malcolm working <laughs> out on it. Though I, I got to tell you, I mean, exercise makes me cringe. But uh, the idea of him... Uh, joking about killing it what a poor choice of words like who made that phrase popular when did that become a compliment (laughs) right 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 i mean only it takes a certain kind of malcolm bright to have it have a problem with the killing it uh affirmation so well it's only if you've taken it in the literal sense that you might have some sort of a i don't know hiccup with it yeah yeah you know it's it's the uh it's the compliment in a box if it were as it were uh speaking of daily i see what you did there (laughs) thank you dad jokes for days people tip your waitresses i'm here all week uh first daily affirmation of the season this episode i saw we haven't seen an affirmation card consider the past and you shall know the future I think that's good advice for everyone. It's kind of a play on those who don't know their history are doomed to repeat it. But particularly for Malcolm, and particularly in season two so far, this examination of his past, and especially his relationship with Martin, really informs his present and hopefully his future. Did that hit you as like a a specifically well-intentioned affirmation this episode? Oh, absolutely. Just knowing what you said, like, you know, George Satsayana, he's uh, the historian who said that if you don't know your past, you're doomed to repeat it, basically. So in seeing that this is where we were going with Malcolm, I was very excited to uncover all little all the skeletons in his proverbial closet. Well, I'm I'm glad you brought that up because shows, especially network shows that have traditional 20, 22 episode seasons, if they run for any length of time, if they're serialized, meaning they have a recurring storyline or a narrative that follows an arc over the course of episodes or a course of the season, like Prodigal Son does, you're going to learn about characters. You're going to learn their lore, their backstory, their mythos, how they came to be the person that they are today. This episode is going to go down in the canon of episodes that form the Malcolm Bright story. So I think you have to put a little bit of a red alert, red alert. You know, this is an episode you can't sleep on because it explains not only how Malcolm got his name, Malcolm Bright, which we've never learned through 20. I mean, this is the 23rd hour of the show through 22 hours. We've never actually gotten a story of how or why or what made him make that decision. We learned that tonight and the origin of the hand tremors, which let's get into hand tremors. Was this the origin story you had for how, why his hand shakes the way it does? No, I assumed it had all to do with his father because I like, I'm going back. Cause I mean, I rewatched season one right before season two started and i just assumed all along that the hand tremor was associated with his father and the trauma associated with the girl in the box his father being arrested being outed as a serial killer all of that 
like I was actually like trying to go back in my memory to pinpoint like, well, did they actually say that the hand tremor started from that? And I couldn't find anything. I think like you, I had assumed it was related to the PTSD from his experiences with Martin growing up and, and the damage done to him from there. Never could have imagined it was triggered by being locked in a janitor's closet for three days. But holy shit, what? I mean, if you're not claustrophobic beforehand, the psychological damage that that must wield and do to you. I mean, Malcolm's a grown man, 16 years away from this incident, and it still kind of makes him quake in his proverbial boots just being on campus and all stemming from that incident. It's a pretty dramatic scene. It's a pretty dramatic reveal, I think, for his character. Really, It really shows you who he is. What did you think of his conversation with Martin uh, back in 2005 with a with a I don't know if they use de-aging makeup on Tom Payne or he just has a naturally kind of baby young face more than most grown men. Uh, so <laughs> if it's just a really close shave, if he actually can look that young with his hair done right. Impressive either way, whether it was uh, CGI or makeup or just his youthfulness. I think it's a combination of makeup and CGI, not to detract from Tom Payne's youthful glow, but no, it was just, it was very, very well done. Like they, he just looked, he had this extra baby face. We're talking a 14, 15 year old Malcolm here and Tom Payne, not, not many men can, you know, who are in their thirties can play their 14 year old selves. That's pretty impressive. Yeah. Usually they just pull like a young actor in. Yeah. to replace yeah i mean look at yellowstone yellowstone yeah. I mean, uh, that's uh, what exactly what's sprang to mind <laughs> i mean they did a flawlessly with their use of uh josh lucas's young uh john dutton uh, to, to rave reviews but i guess if you can have if you were somehow able to de-age kevin costner to the bull durham days you'd probably do that if you could do it on a on a reasonable budget but yeah i think you're right i think it's probably a combination of makeup and his natural youthful good looks yeah like what popped into my mind was like how they brought like in rogue one star wars rogue one how they brought like carrie fisher back after she passed away but they also to bring her back to like the early princess leia days like it was a combination of live footage that they had from her they had a stand-in uh, actually it was her daughter as the stand-in i think and just cgi so yeah uh, but it was done well so that that's the pro here it was billy lord i think right that stood in billy lord but, yeah yeah I, I mean the de-aging technology the computer the computer graphic special effect the aging technology has has come a long way since rogue one it's come a long way even since de niro and his uh, mafia pals went through it in the irishman where it got kind I of just i just finished watching that i started it last year and i just finished well i mean the i'm movie, just kidding i'm the, just kidding the movie is 18 hours long so yeah. <laughs> i mean it's it's a week's worth of viewing in one sitting so yeah so i well I, that's really neither here nor there it was just something i wanted to remark on because god he i mean He's so, so young. But the idea of him starting over again, this is not the origin story going to a new boarding school that his mother is forcing him to go or brainwashing him to him. If you take Martin's side of it, brainwashing him to go to the school to start over, not the origin story I would have guessed for his new name. But isn't that what is the draw of this show, really, is that you you get this origin story, you get the origin of his name, the rewriting of his story, the origin of the hand tremors, and we all assumed it was part of column A. And then we learn through the writing of the show, through this episode, that it's completely where we were not even looking. This is like a, a well-trained act of misdirection in the best way possible. 
and really answered a question that fans maybe had made assumptions on. I mean, certainly you and I had made assumptions on. I imagine most people who are fans of the show assumed it was all Martin, Martin, Martin related. And his name was Martin related, as it turned out, but not in the way I think anyone would have guessed. I don't know. I assumed it came later in his life when he was getting ready to enter the FBI. That's where I was going with that. If we're basing this on 2005, he's probably been Malcolm Bright, really, as long as he was Malcolm Whitley at this point in his life, Agree. based on whatever it is, or at least roughly equivalent at this point. Yeah, I mean, yeah. running right neck and neck, I'd say, at this point. That's a significant amount of time to live with this new identity, you know, and I really like how Martin handles this. And this we can get into this later, but there's a whole big discussion that I think you have to have about is Martin Whitley a black and white bad dad or is he really more shades of gray? Because it's been a question I think that has loomed throughout the series, his serial killer tendencies aside as a father, as a father to Malcolm, is he really a bad dad or not? It's something we're going to get into. I think when we talk about Martin, but Mm -hmm. start thinking about that because it's definitely a conversation I want to have with you. Let's get back to Malcolm and the case of the week boarding schools. Nothing good happens at boarding schools. No. De- dead poet society. School ties. Uh, I mean, it, it, nothing good happens at boarding schools. This episode, Cruel Intentions, this episode reminded me. I end me, up crying at every boarding school movie I watch. Well, it, it, it's, it's just a breeding ground for malcontents and psychopaths. Honestly, that's what, if, if you were to believe what TV and movies tell us about boarding schools, you are so, probably going to break bad. Someone is going to commit suicide. Suicide or be murdered or. Or be murdered, yes. Yes, cruel intentions, right? If if you can't trust your sandwiches to not be poison free, (laughs) what world are we even living in? So I I added that to the murder weapon tally. Uh, we're gonna hit the murder tally. We're gonna hit the murder weapon tally in a second. But when we get there, I just—I'm sorry. It was just me being goofy I at two a.m. If I'm giving an elevator pitch for this episode, the characters that we know and love aside, just describing the more, the boarding school, I'm calling this Heather's having a threesome with Cruel Intentions and the Breakfast Club. That was kind of my vibe for this episode. Heather's having a threesome with Cruel Intentions and the Breakfast Club. All right, I'm I'm gonna it, I'll allow it. Because, you know, Heather's is this movie that not enough people, especially uh, young people, watch. But you should really go watch it. It's, it, it is was, fantastic. It's fantastic. It's so dark. It's everything that movies like Mean Girls, which I'm a fan of Mean Girls, try to be but can never quite hit. Not in the dark tone, black humor of it all. Yes, it's like it's black humor. It's, it's really like the extreme of it in the best way possible. Maybe you don't need Breakfast Club in there. Maybe it was just straight fucking between Heather's and Cruel Intentions. But then you got a threesome in there so that just makes it interesting oh i mean then we could go to wild things if we're for the threesome there though, yeah. though, I, though i give the show credit because the obvious thing was it, it was gonna turn out that anton louisa and molly had also been sexual together like that was where i felt like they were always maybe gonna go with like, oh i didn't think so i didn't think well, that they were gonna go i am there. a disgusting man what do you yeah, want me well, to tell you well you because know. because malcolm was dead right when he talks to them when wet malcolm talks to them in the classroom they all were clearly hiding something they were all oh, clearly absolutely. they were all clear that's where i got the breakfast club vibe was that these three people from different walks of life clearly had were in cahoots together right so it was just how and 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 then we saw how it shook out so speaking of like things that just not enough people know about cahoots is just a word that needs to be used far more often 
Yeah, it's kind of old timey. It, it's I definitely. Like it. it's I'm old timey. It's definitely like Perry Mason. You know, like hey, yeah, yo, yo, you in cahoots with that dame over there? You know, uh, so that sounds like Columbo to me. Columbo would be more like. A, well, uh, uh, one more question. Well, yeah, okay. So you're walking a line between the two. All right. I'm always walking. I honestly, I only have three impressions, and they're just shades of gray on all of those impressions. So. <laughs> I just don't attempt many impressions. So. Well, I, I can't help myself. I can't help myself. Uh, let's talk about some pros and cons of this episode before we get really into the specific characters. Con, I'm going to start with. I was missing JT, Ainsley, and there was very little Danny in this episode. Those were actually the three things that I was like at the end of the episode. I'm like, don't get me wrong. I'm not being greedy. I was very satisfied with what we got, but I was unsatisfied because I did. I was missing some of my other components that kind of make this like the bread and butter yummy for me. Especially coming off of JT's big storyline the first two episodes and yeah. and, and the way the, the ominous cliffhanger that we kind of have built to last week with his, you know, I'll handle it. Well, his handling it was by going and becoming a father and not appearing in this episode at all. So <laughs> he's taking some time to regroup, Mike. Give him a break. He's like, uh, now he's now he's on like a paternal leave, so he's got uh, he's got a bit of a respite here. Well, it was. A tr- I'm glad that they just didn't drop him or send him to the Caribbean or something, you know, altogether. I'm glad that because they had layered in the fact that Tally was about to have a baby, and so that that finally kind of happened. So I'm glad that there was a reason given for him not being around. But yeah. now you have to think. Given, let's think about his storyline. Now being a father, the idea of being a father is one thing. When that actual little baby is in your arms, it heightens everything else so i think you have to worry that his troubles at work and everything he's going through there it's going to be so much more heightened now now that there is literally another little human in his life that he has to take care of and help keep alive definitely the pro because we had two and a half less characters and storylines in this episode i mean danny was in this episode but she was really i mean she was in this episode as much as adresa and actually maybe had less to do than adresa even in this episode the pro to that is that it allowed us to have really deep dive into malcolm and malcolm's history i mean to get so many flashbacks to 2005 and his time with the school that comes at a cost and the cost is you have less of your normal core characters in the show and thus storylines in the show I don't want that every week because I love this ensemble, but I'm not going to kick this flashback out of bed. I'm not going to kick the mythos <laughs> revealing out of bed, though. You know, I'm going to enjoy my time with it for sure. I'm with you here, too, because, I, you know, I definitely want my Danny Malcolm conversations. I, you know, I need to know what's going on with Ainsley. I'm a little worried for her with her dissociative suppression trauma that she's got going on. And, you know, I want to see what's going on with JT. But at the same time, bringing in this really like fan canon right now, we're going to get this lore of malcolm's backstory and it's going to keep building on what we've learned here throughout the remaining episodes of this season so i'm like you said it's a pro it's a con it's both but at the same time like i definitely felt rewarded at the end of this episode learning what we learned so going back to Malcolm's boarding school days, which was a trip in and of itself, there was something that caught my attention. It was um, they were talking about the senior pranks that go on in the school. And as far as senior pranks go, this school gets pretty elaborate. Malcolm's year, they forked the quad. I wasn't actually sure what that meant at first. And then the headmaster's desk <laughs> lands in the pool. So as we said last episode, Mike and I went to high school together. Do you remember any of the senior pranks in our senior year? I don't remember doing any senior pranks in our senior year. I didn't do any senior pranks, but there were senior pranks that were done. I have no recollection of them because I, you know, I was a super band geek. I was just hanging out in the drum room uh, with the percussion ensemble, completely oblivious to any senior pranks that would go 
gone on. I, cause I thought of this too. I, we each came to this question separately and I thought to myself, I don't think us little terriers did anything when we were seniors. Well, somebody did something because somebody let go crickets in the school on our last day of school. Oh, like Jesus. in the, yeah, it was disgusting. I, I remember this because I have a picture in one of my many photo albums from back in the day of a cricket. It definitely was released on our last day of school. We could, uh, they basically, they were saying that we were like a plague of locusts and somebody released crickets. <laughs> I don't know who it was to this day. It's been like 20, it's, it's 25 years this year. Jesus Christ. That's really sad, huh? Yeah, Jesus. I don't um, know. There's no de-aging technology that can take me back to that day. I oh, I am trying with serums and creams. It's not working, friends. So I might have to, you know, like get some of that CGI shit that they've got going on over there prodigal son but yeah someone released crickets that's wild i have zero recollection of that but it seems pretty on point though for a catholic school to release a plague yeah. uh, on your, as a senior prank yeah and you know just coming off of last week's you know highly religious episode i guess it was on my mind somehow i mean god <laughs> i feel like god's gonna be with us a bunch in this episode because of friar pete and and martin's bible study group i mean there was some great judas heathen talk at the in this episode but, oh i caught that too yeah uh, i, I want to go back to forking real quick because <laughs> of this, course you do be, well, so so I had never heard this phrase before. I was not aware of what this is. And I was talking to Caroline, who is from Texas and in Houston. And I think this was a Shit's Creek episode it came up in. And I got schooled about what forking is. And apparently this is the thing. And it, may, it must not be a New York City boroughs thing. But she thought I had like two heads that I had never heard of this thing. But do you know what it is? Did you go look up what forking is? Uh, no, I looked up psychopathy instead. Uh, well, that's, I mean, that's, that's a, that's a, that's that, where my brain goes. That's going to be an issue between you and your web browser. So, uh, <laughs> which you're, you're going to need to deal with one day when, when you clear out, you need to go in incognito when you go searching those things, Sheila, because I'm worried about the police coming to you. Your listen, door. listen, as, as a good friend, I, until that happens, I need you to make sure that when I die, that you clear my web browser history, because the things that I have looked up just for the show alone, <laughs> just for the show alone, Mike includes like what's the difference between a psychopath and a sociopath? Psychopathy. Um, are New York State mental health professionals obligated to report violent crimes? I gotta tell you, the Pod Clubhouse insurance policy does not include bail money. Please okay. clear your browser. All right. Well, in the event that I die, you're gonna be my insurance policy. You're gonna come and you're gonna be like, okay, I'm just gonna just gotta do this one thing. And okay, now we can mourn her. No, I'm gonna tell John to do it because I ain't going anywhere near that crime scene because because you know, I know I'm gonna get Whoa. caught red-handed clearing out that browser. Listen, you're you're not taking me down with you with your your sick sicko web browser. I didn't say I committed a crime. I just said like when I die. Like, well, I'm telling you, use your incognito browser and then you don't have to worry about it forking apparently is the deranged practice of planting forks or sporks in the ground in a lawn but like putting it really low so that when like the groundskeeper would go to cut the grass basically is just shredding forks and messing up the blades and destroying not only destroying lawns but destroying the like lawn equipment used to like take care of like lawns like lawnmowers I, I wish you could see my face right now I was okay maybe this is the super band geek that you know the crowd that we ran in I was thinking forking was like they would make like a pattern like almost like a, a like a drumline pattern in, in in the grass with the forks 
like well, a, I mean, like a the, big middle finger or something well, like that. I think that there may be a pattern involved there, but my understanding from, again, this conversation with Caroline was that it was basically just destruction of the lawn. Uh, I don't know that it has to be in a pattern or just random planting of forks. I, it struck me as weird as a thing that they were doing in Westchester because I live upstate New York now, not too, too far from where the school allegedly takes place. I don't see anyone forking. The high school kids here don't fork the grounds. That's not a thing in New York, as far as I know. I also did not know that forking was, like, fork was a verb. I thought it was just a noun. Uh, well, you can go fork yourself. That's what I got to say. Ouch. Um, anyway. So, cause so I'm just going to do a little footnote from last week. So when we talked about Malcolm not not going to his therapist anymore, that's what I was looking up. Mental health professionals in New York State are obligated to report violent crimes. Oh, there you go. I did some further research because I was unsatisfied with my answer last week. I have, and if I remember, I'll, I'll share it at the end of this episode. It hasn't really, it wasn't really applicable in this episode, but I have a really random fact about the show also, but I'm not going to share it right now. A little okay. teaser. I just didn't want to forget. So. I'm going to show a little ankle and uh, take it right back. <laughs> How significant is Nikki Cubbing, is Malcolm's Nikki Cubbing story, do you think, to the man that Malcolm is today? The idea that he walked to the edge of the darkness, I mean, really premeditated kind of almost killed Nikki. He triggered an asthma attack and then drained his asthma inhaler, but then he walks it back and he calls for help and, and Nikki lives because Malcolm doesn't go over the edge. Is this a foundational story for the kind of person Malcolm is today? What was your take on that? Absolutely. I was, I was actually appalled at what was going on. I was like, no, I was like, you're like, when he set up the story with Louisa that he killed somebody, I was like, oh shit. Like, what did you do, Malcolm? The fact that he took the asthma inhaler ahead of time, emptied it is absolutely 100%. That is premeditated murder right there. And he knew how to induce the asthma attack. So the fact that he walked it back, I think was his conscious rejection of, we've talked about this a lot so far, of the nature nurture aspect of the serial killer traits within him he caught it in time he caught the trait in time and he was able to reject it and say no not today satan so i feel that nikki covington is very very important to the the man that malcolm has become and is still becoming he's still evolving with this this nature nurture struggle that he's got between his father's traits and uh rejecting those traits and his will to reject those traits how about you i agree and i think i'll take it even a step further this episode really went far to illustrate a point that martin actually tries to make to him i'm not sure if malcolm heard it the way Martin intended it, or if Malcolm heard it at all. But the idea that you can change your name, but you are who you are, even with starting over at this very fancy boarding school, well away from the, the lights of the city, where no one should have been able to know who he was, your past still catches up with you. You're still going to be persecuted for being a Whitley. The headmaster is still going to look at you funny. I mean, Malcolm even says it. He gets a real twisted look in his eye when he talks about uh, yeah, how the headmaster of Brownback sensed it in him. Again, this is the third week in a row where we're talking about sensing the murdery vibes inside of Malcolm. What a weird theme to develop, but it's like he's got murder pheromones and you can't, you can't, like he can't help but let it leak out where people are picking up on the darkness inside of him i I think on top of being foundational to who he is especially in relation to his father i think it was the first time he really got a glimpse of the fact that no matter what you do you can only run so far from who you really are you are malcolm whitley no matter what name you use you're malcolm whitley 
Well, somewhere, I think, deep down, Malcolm heard this, whether whether you're talking about the conversation that Martin had with Malcolm when he was a teenager or the one that he has like later on um, talking about like owning his name. Malcolm internalized some of this because he's telling Louisa, you, you can run away to England, you can do whatever it is, but you're still going to be his daughter. You're still mm-hmm. going to be connected to him. So I feel like he had internalized some of that because it did come out in this conversation with Louisa. That you can run from it, but you can't hide from it. You're always going to be this person's kid. And you're always going to have to own that in some way, shape, or form. So I feel like that was there, too. Now, thinking about it, that you actually make a great point. It's always hard to – it's always hard – Some. it's not always. Sometimes it's hard to get a good feel of what Mar- what Malcolm has internalized in these conversations with his father and his own self-reflection versus what he kind of pushes away and uh, rejects from his father you're you're 100 right though the conversation with louisa really is him talking about himself i mean the idea that you can run to oxford all you want but you're still gonna be you know your your douchebag father's daughter so much of the season and i think we've already talked about this in every episode so far this season but it seems to be an emerging theme is this father-son relationship? And I, I'm really here for it because I think it's it's always been one of the dynamics that's most interested me in the show. I love the crime of the week. I love the wacky weapons. I love the kind of out there narrative that they do. But at the heart of it, this is a family drama between, in particular, between Malcolm and Martin and that relationship because father-son relationships are complicated. Parent relationships with your kids are complicated. Few are more complicated than the father-son relationship. I think we're going to continue to see this evolving relationship because because Malcolm isn't running from Martin anymore. He is, he's not running at all. He's standing his ground and kind of confronting that relationship. And so the first time, and I think in his life, is really dealing with his relationship which changes the whole dynamic because Martin has had to chase Malcolm, you know, since he's been in Claremont, he's had to chase him to get him to like pin him down to talk to him. Now Malcolm is freely coming to Martin and talking to him. I don't know that Martin's even prepared for that. It's going to change the whole dynamic of their relationship, but we're getting to see that happen on play out on screen. And I'm so, so excited to kind of be bear witness to it. And, you know, just to add a further layer of complexity to the father, son, parental child relationship here, you know, you've got a serial killer to deal with on top of it and all the baggage that that brings. If you add in, uh, you know, a, a taste for blood and death and murder. Uh, yeah. It, it's bound to make uh, all conversations a little more tinged. It's a little, little strained. Yeah. This was something that was kind of plaguing me this episode because now I'm, I don't know if I'm sensing a pattern or, or what's going on, but I feel like Malcolm might be a little bit off his game when it comes to profiles. I'll back this up with some evidence, basically saying like the last time out, he figured it was the nun that was responsible for the, the, the murder of the priest. The desanguination. He missed it. It was the professor and he missed it until it was uh, very imminent. He was in very imminent danger. This time out, he was stunned that it was Louisa. He figured it was Delaney. He thought that he was he'd, he'd had his man, and he was literally shocked. I mean, the, that was that was the look that I registered on his face. It was shocked. So, do you think that Malcolm is off his game, or was he just not prepared for Delaney's lie this time out, and was just broadsided by Louisa? 
and like and the psycho that she's really becoming that we we see the evolution of her psycho in about 12 seconds well you know he kind of went back and forth right because he initially in the end he was right though because his first his first profile did point to the kids but he it pointed to the teen brain working alone and he even identifies louisa and adresa backs him up because she's got a heavy hand uh louisa <laughs> does and he even fingers her as being the most likely because she's the brains of the operation so his profile was right but then he started to doubt himself because you know he he felt like he was stereotyping these modern kids at remington because of his experience with nikki and and presumably other kids at his time uh, at the school he was right i mean he second guessed himself it's like when you know the answer is c on the multiple choice test but then you erase it because you convince yourself that maybe it's a people always go with your first answer you have to have faith in your instincts people need to believe their gut a thousand times more than they do it's really trying to tell you something and malcolm doesn't listen to his gut here he he gives up on it because why he's resting on jessica's interrogation of louisa to me that was the most oddball thing was that he was going to rest on jessica's very biased eye I mean, she busts into the classroom when he's wet Malcolm and says, those kids are innocent. I mean, she has, she doesn't know fuck all about this case. And she's coming in and making this pronouncement. We're going to trust her to give a clear assessment. That didn't say, seem right to me. So I was less worried about his profile than the fact that he was willing to delegate the the actual minutiae investigation to not even Gil or Danny or JT, or but to, to Jessica? That doesn't seem right to me. She seems, of all the people in the show, seems the least qualified to interrogate anyone because I think Jessica has the most problems setting aside her own biases and looking at people with a clear objective eye. I think everything in Jessica's life is through a subjective eye that's a problem that's a problem if you're going to rest a, a, a case and a witness and an investigation on it and let's be fair malcolm was kind of right with delaney i mean he gets turned on to delaney and and the poison points him in the right direction because he had seen him using it and delaney was doing something very very bad for a very very long time so it wasn't exactly the crime of murder but he was right to suspect him of doing something now, to your larger question, there does seem to be a feeling of unease, but I don't think Malcolm's profiling skills are actually diminished or off in any way. I think Malcolm's confidence in himself is what has been diminished. I think that's the change you're sensing. He is less inclined to believe himself because he's wrestling with these inner demons right now. And I'm hoping that as he excises the Endicott chopping up and the bloodlust and all the things he's having problems with, uh, the Hyde, the Mr. Hyde in the reflection that we were seeing last week, uh, no, in uh, the first episode, in the sex dungeon, you know, that Mr. Hyde persona, as he ex excises that and works out those issues more, I'm hoping we see a return to him being more confident in his profiles, because I think that's really the problem. Okay. A big step forward in this Martin-Malcolm father-son relationship is comes at the end of the episode where Malcolm, who had previously accused Martin of selling him out to the dean and, and revealing his name just because and he, he i mean he has a whole backstory ready to accuse martin of that you were unhappy that i changed the whitley name were you so petty that you would destroy the last thing of normalcy i had in my life and martin very calmly and very very fatherly says to him 
you're the one person I could never hurt. And, you know, even to the extent it cost my freedom. And I never left any messages anywhere. And that's what puts Malcolm on to suspecting Delaney. He later, he comes and apologizes at the end of the episode. He apologizes to Martin, which is not something we've ever seen before. Um, clearly, Martin is dumbfounded. Martin doesn't know what to do with this apology. Is this a significant step in their relationship, do you think? Or is this just more of like a one-off Malcolm just calling a spade a spade when he was wrong? I was wrong, like a Dr. Hauser. I was wrong and I admit I'm wrong. I think this is significant because I think this is where Malcolm is starting to realize that he can compartmentalize his relationship with, with Martin to be able to reject, like I said, I just said this earlier, to reject some of the serial killer traits or some of the murdery vibes that he's he sees manifesting in, in himself and also recognize that Martin is trying to be, like you said this earlier and I've been thinking about it, like he's not a black and white dad. No, he's not. He is a gray dad, his hair notwithstanding. Oh, he rocking that salt and pepper. Oh, I'm, I'm here for it. Like Michael Sheen is just such a phenomenal actor. Like in this scene alone with Malcolm where he said, like, I'm just taking it back. Like his whole... From his the hair on the top of his head to his entire body, he you saw that he was just in shock. He was taken aback. He was at a loss for words. So Michael Sheen is just killing it as Martin for me this season. But in terms of their relationship, I do feel this is significant because it's Malcolm's realization that his dad is is here for him that in whatever way you can be in an insane asylum and with the limitations that he has as a serial killer. So that definitely impacts his ability to interact with humanity in a normal way, because he has this obvious major deformity that he, he likes to kill people. So it definitely puts a strain on people's relationship. But I just think the fact that Malcolm knew that Martin was truthful with him because Martin has everything to lose if he lies to Malcolm, because he knows Malcolm is smart and he's going to figure it out. So Martin has all his cards, I feel, on the table right now for Malcolm to see. And Malcolm is picking and choosing the things that he wants to deepen with Martin. And I feel that the apology is him realizing that he needs a connection with Martin. And even though he said that he could walk away from him, I don't feel that he really can because there is this truthfulness to Martin that is refreshing to Malcolm, I think. I'm excited to see where this goes with them. I am hoping that Malcolm being able to confront his father and deal with him as an adult and not as a victim of his youth will allow him to be able to speak to Martin so that he doesn't have to leave him behind. I know it's like a weird thing, but like I really ship the rehabilitation of this father-son relationship. Same. Because I think there are elements, I think there are elements in each of them that help the other. I, I think there are very, very, very strong negatives in each of them that diminish the other. I think Malcolm is a real weak spot for Martin that encourages the worst impulses in him looking at you jer bear <laughs> i think if i think if jer bear throws like you know a shoe at jessica or maybe ainsley maybe he reacts similar to ainsley but i think it's less certain he's going to react so negatively or be so triggered by someone else getting a shoe thrown at them than when it's malcolm and it's significant the the, the idea that you are the one person i could never i thought he was going to say never lie to that's that was what i the wording i thought that's the obvious tropey wording that you expect to come out but lisa randolph better write than that she says you're the one person i could never hurt 
or jeopardize the safety of, even to the extent that it cost me my own freedom, which is going back to the fact, you know, way back when, when young Malcolm betrays his father to Gil, you know, in that pivotal scene. And Martin is, you know, still, he's on his hands and knees, grabbing his head right before he gets hauled away and saying, you're, you're my son, you and I are the same. Even then, even knowing Malcolm is the one who gave him up to the cops, he still sees him only as his son. And that is that is his first and foremost. But again, that's a weakness for Martin that makes him do very, bad, very, very bad things. Malcolm, you know, it, Martin is this weakness, is this negative energy for Martin because he represents so much darkness. He is literally the face of darkness inside of Malcolm. You know, if we were to open up your chest and everyone was and every emotion was represented by a person in your life, the, the darkest, blackest parts of his heart and soul would look like Martin, you know, not the good parts. That's what their relationship has always been. I'm hoping they can get to a place where they begin to bring out the best in each other. The fact that they are that fact that Martin is loyal to Malcolm. He actually doesn't really betray him. He didn't lie to him here, you know, and he knew he didn't lie to him, but he didn't, he didn't go off. He didn't get shouty in Malcolm's face. He didn't say you're off base. He, he, he takes it in stride that Malcolm is working through all of the damage Martin did to Malcolm. And I like that aspect. I like that he's giving him room to vent and work it out for himself because from Martin's standpoint, anyway, it's working because Malcolm keeps coming back and he's coming back more and more of his own free will. Whereas in season one, he would only go see Martin or reluctantly and only when a case was on the line. Now, these two are seeing each other more like son going to visit dad in the old folks home, except for the old folks home is a, you know, a mental institution for, you know, criminally insane uh, criminals. So that's a long way of saying I agree with you. I think it's a very significant step in a relationship. I don't think it's just going to be a one off. I think it's just another brick being put back in the wall that these two are trying to rebuild, whether they're aware of it or not. I think Martin is aware of the wall being rebuilt. I don't know how consciously Malcolm is aware of the wall being rebuilt, but I think he certainly laying bricks to rebuild that wall. But Martin also doesn't always understand the trappings that, and I don't mean trappings in a good way here, uh, of what comes with being a Whitley out in the world. Like Martin is in this very enclosed space. So it's, it's something you touched upon before that, you know, Martin has a, the, you know, Malcolm's best interest at heart, but he also doesn't always understand how badly his family is affected out in the out in the world out in real life by being associated with him so like the fact that malcolm had to change his name when martin's talking about in the second episode when he says oh he goes my kids are great and meanwhile you know they're both recovering from having you know killed and dismembered a man and he's just not he's not in tune with all of the nuances i guess is what i'm trying to say that malcolm is dealing with so i i feel like this was an important step in and i agree with you in rebuilding a foundation or building a foundation because they really haven't had it's been very stilted to date where it's it's been a need relationship as opposed to a want relationship so um so yeah that's that's kind of like a a, a furthering of that discussion I guess in in furthering the the conversation with Malcolm, one thing I did not like this episode was his in um, was Malcolm's interpretation or mimicking imitation of Gil, you know, and and how he would have reacted to Malcolm. <laughs> being in the fire vault i think he made gill sound about 20 pounds heavier than gill actually is but the tone i thought was actually pretty spot on no it was it was but i just didn't i didn't necessarily buy it as something that malcolm would do it just felt very out of character for me for him but at the end of the episode is gill's reaction to malcolm starting a fire in the vault is it warranted 
Gil is about as angry, I think, as we've seen him. That's wild to me. We're talking about a guy who used an antique gun and shot out a window, jumped from a third story onto his car, destroying his car, his beloved car, for quite a while. His Le Mans. Uh, you know, this didn't seem very out of character and honestly it didn't seem the most extreme thing this seemed pretty well calculated a fancy school that's so overly funded would have a state-of-the-art fire suppression system i mean i think it was funny and i think maybe the show was going for the the comedic effect here at the end and i think that's why he does the the impersonation because the episode was done so the idea of the wrap-up and the lucy you got some explaining to do that kind of like (laughs) shtick that gil and malcolm often go through i think they kind of had to be like all right get get it over with because we got to roll credits on this episode you know and we got to get to jt having his baby it was done for comedic effect and it was a thing that they have to have as part of the final wrap-up of the case but it seemed well overblown considering all the other shit Malcolm has done. I mean, sawing off the guy's arm to, you know, you know, to, to stop the bomb kind of thing and save the guy's right. life. I mean, Malcolm, the sex dungeon, the, the, the cattle prodding, the nail gun. I mean, these are all, uh, did he cattle prod? No, it was a nail gun and then a bone saw in the sex dungeon. Like, yes, yeah. Malcolm has done a lot more outrageous things. I mean, he was going to die otherwise. So in the face of that, what Gil would rather him have done what? Just just gone bravely into that, you know, strange night of death. No, you rage. You rage against the dying of the light. God damn it. You know, by setting a fire. Very, very well played. Seeing as how that that's like, you know, a good text that would probably end up in that vault. Well played. Yes, I, I did feel that it was extreme, but I didn't feel like it was Malcolm Bright extreme. It was, on the spectrum of Malcolm, I say this was probably maybe a little left of center because I think in his mind, he figured that if the school was so grossly overfunded that the fire suppression system would also pinpoint the actual location of the fire alarm that this way it would bring the rescuers right to him. So I think this was like well played on his part. I think Gil is maybe starting to put a couple of things together that he feels that Malcolm is being a little distant and maybe to what you said earlier maybe like his profile he's noticing his profiles are a little off his game as well I don't know if Gil is putting a couple of things together but there's definitely he's on to Malcolm in a way that I haven't seen before I think a more interesting question is if Gil is going to start writing Malcolm harder because of his issues with Jessica and I, I mean, if you're ready to, I think let's skip over Martin for right now. Let's get into Gil and Jessica, because as you're as we're talking this through, that's the only reason I can I can really that makes sense to me. And then it does make sense to me of of why Gil writes him hard at the end of this episode. And I wonder if this is going to be the thing that continues, you know, once is maybe a coincidence, twice uh, establishes a pattern, three confirms the pattern. And so I'm curious if we're going to see in upcoming episodes, Gil writing Malcolm Harder as punishment subconscious or conscious of what's going on with jessica were you surprised at how angry and standoffish gill was towards jessica in this episode surprised i mean we know the phrase woman scorned but this was man scorned that was very the vibe he was giving off i mean in fairness he did 
say that her family was cursed. So maybe it's embarrassment on his part that he's feeling that he did call her family cursed, right? So he's probably feeling really bad about that and what he did to her. So sometimes like it can manifest as as anger. I was surprised at how offensive he was that like basically you tell me to get lost and now you show up and and you're you're asking for us to be on this case because like I had all kinds of like jurisdiction questions about this but I think it's hurt male pride in a way that we're not it's not the -the run-of-the-mill hurt male pride I feel like he feels really bad that she overheard what he said like it was a moment of privacy between him and, and a confidant a friend it was him and Danny saying this and you have conversations with friends that are maybe more honest than you would with other people who might be family or close to you in other ways. So I think he's hurt in the sense that she overheard something she shouldn't have, and he doesn't really know how to make it right. I think it's both of them are licking wounds. I think, you know, we had this conversation last week. I think I think Jessica definitely had a part of her that already feels like her family is cursed and she is cursed and she's not meant to be happy or entitled to find love. That she only can be with men like Endicott. The track record of Martin and Endicott proving a pattern in her and that someone like Gil, who she sees as a good and honorable man, maybe she's not good enough for him. So I think there's I think there's part of that is true. But I think part of why she breaks up with Gil is that she she was hurt and offended at him saying out loud the worst thing that she already thinks about herself internally. It always hurts more when you hear the person you love say the thing, even if you already think that about yourself. Hearing someone else say it, hearing someone else that you love say it always stings so much more. I think there's some prickly bush stuff going on on her end, and I think Gil you're deadly right. I think you're dead on right. I think Gil feeling bad about saying it out loud. I think feeling bad about maybe not handling the situation correctly, not sensing that there was something wrong and how it all went down is playing into it. But that's an issue. And that's a, that's a very immature way for two adults as old and as experienced. And both of these people were married. These are second relationships, significant relationships for each of them. And I think they need to get over themselves a bit. If they're meant to be, and if they're going to work out, he needs to swallow the male pride a little bit. She needs to be a little bit less defensive and own the same way Martin is telling Malcolm, he has to own being a Whitley. Jessica has to own being a Whitley also, or, or an ex Whitley as you know, as where she didn't change her name to Milton. She kept the Whitley name and has kept the Whitley name. So she has to own that a little bit and all the baggage that comes with that. So these two need to get over out of their own ways. And I think that's what's keeping them from being together. And I like them together. I hope they get together. I, I think they're good for each other, but they're being a little immature here. I think. If I had to be a predicting kind of a TV watcher here, I feel like because I do ship the two of them hard, but I feel like like the worst is out now. Like they've said, like they're mean pieces and, you know, Jessica's like, well, we're just adults. Can't we get on with it? I feel like they're in a place now where like the worst is out there. It's on the table and it can be processed and it can be digested. And then they might be in a better place to move forward now that like, you know, going forward, like, you know, I said some things I didn't mean. I said some things I didn't mean. So I feel like they might be able to move forward after this. Because, like, this is really the low point, right? This is the trough in your, like, reverse bell curve. And then, like, emotionally, they they can move forward from here, I think. So, obvious question here. How did Malcolm not know that Jessica was on the board of trustees for the school? I mean, not just on the board. I mean, the vice chairwoman. I mean, she's she's ostensibly the second in command of the school. My, my gut instinct is everything Remington-related 
he has a real blocking it out kind of thing. Plus, Jessica probably gets up to all sorts of things that Malcolm tries hard to not get involved in because they, they have an interesting relationship, a real, a real push and pull kind of relationship where she overly meddles in his life, though so she would call it mothering. Um, I was going to say it's mothering, it's not mother- meddling. It's mothering, not meddling. That was a funny line from last week. That's what I say about my fathering skills. It's not meddling. It's fathering, though my son, I think, would disagree. Yeah, I, so I think I think he has a real blind spot when it comes to, A, things Jessica is doing, and B, as we learned in this episode, I mean, talk about trauma, talk about PTSD, Remington Academy, they, it felt so much of this episode, and I think this was an interesting direction style that they haven't really used very much on this show. It was like he was walking through a, a, a real nightmare this entire episode. He had waking flashbacks, the way he falls into the pool as he's staring at his hand tremor and he's remembering his time with Nikki by the lockers. Everything about that school is a literal waking nightmare for Malcolm. So, Red flag. <laughs> yeah, right? And so I think the idea that she is the vice chairwoman is one of those things that he probably is aware of, but was not consciously thinking about until the fact that she shows up, which I think also explains the jurisdictional issues so for people that don't know westchester is a county in new york it is one of new york's 62 counties but it is not one of the counties that make up new york city new york city is made up of five counties which are called boroughs in the city the bronx which westchester sits just above brooklyn new york queens staten island and manhattan and westchester so westchester is a cousin it is it is the it is the next county over from new york it's, city it's the rich cousin it is, it is well i mean there are some parts of westchester but yeah for the most part westchester is the very affluent cousin to uh, New York City. Uh, New York City cops and YPD would have no business being there. So I had the same I had the same jurisdictional issue too. I was like, this show is going to be smarter than that. But then when Jessica comes in and all the dots get connected that she called the mayor to get them put this on the case, Gil specifically and her son specifically, so that she can keep this kind of hush-hush, that all made a lot of sense to me. I, just like Malcolm had a great backstory, I love whenever we get Milton Money backstory because we don't <laughs> we haven't learned other than I mean, there was a great episode where Jessica spends a lot of time talking about her family home, that the, the you know, stately Whitley Manor is actually a stately Milton Manor. And so we got that in season one, but we don't really get to too much backstory on Jessica and her family and how she comes from money, money independently of what her and Martin built together. But hearing about Pop Pop's Aquatic Center, I was like, shit, man, give me more Jessica backstory. We got to get Bellamy on the show. We got to talk to her about the the Milton fortune. So I I had a question about, like, I guess, Jessica's reaction to all of this and bringing in major crimes from New York City up to Westchester. Is she more concerned with her own reputation or that of the school? Because when she said, you know, it was, you know, he's in Pop Pop's Aquatic Center, like when you said that, like that, that triggered that for me. Is she more concerned that it's going to get back to her and her involvement with it and then just the negative press? Or is she just concerned about the school? I I think in every single thing Jessica Whitley does, there is a large percentage of it that is about and goes towards preservation of her and her media and her children's how it affects them. And how it reflects on them. I, I think that's a lesson learned from her time with Martin and her place in high society always being maybe called into question. And it's, I think it's an insecurity of Jessica's that she she kept the Whitley name, but that comes with baggage that she's never fully dealt with or processed and has made her really sensitive to any kind of perceived bad press. I mean, Professor Delaney is taking over the school. He didn't seem terribly upset that he's coming into the job um, because of a dead head 
headmaster. You know, like no one else seemed really, no one at the school seemed really terribly upset about the headmaster being dead, except for Jessica. And I think that was because of bad press for the school leads to bad press for her. You know, you you raise a good point. Like when you distill it down for Jessica, everything that she's done that we've seen to this point has been for the good of her children. Basically, she's she's always out to protect them, even though they're adults and they can fend for themselves. She still is very purposeful in her actions of protecting them. So I do feel that it comes across as maybe a little shallow at times. But then I think when you like look at it, and you distill it down like you can really see where she is trying to protect Malcolm and Ainsley more so than her own well-being, I think. So good point. Thanks for making me think about that. <laughs> well, you're welcome. That's what I'm here to do. I mean, I'm, I'm here to make you all think. I guess I have another question about uh, Jessica and maybe sometimes her, her mothering skills maybe being called into question. So we find out that Malcolm was locked in this janitor's closet for three days, which is harrowing enough. But he was supposed to go to his family for the weekend, Yes. Why didn't they all raise like all holy hell to find him? Like, I find that even more distressing. I think that says a lot about the Whitleys and what who they were as parents. I mean, who we are as people so often can be tracked down or tracked back to our youth, right? And and for good or bad, you know, we either are, are imbued by the lessons of our parents for good or not, or we are formed by the neglect of our parents for good or not. The idea that the Whitleys, who were super rich to the point where they can have a car come to the school to bring Malcolm out to the Hamptons, from Westchester, that's quite a car ride. I mean, even if you're leaving from Queens, going out to the Hamptons is a several-hour car ride in the summertime. You add going through Manhattan and Westchester to get there, like, that's, like, a lot. And I bring that up only just to demonstrate, I think this reveals that they were much more concerned about status than about being good parents. I think that was a really revealing and disturbing aspect of him being locked in the closet, which is probably not lost on him. I think if he was still going to therapy, I think it would come out that he was probably as affected by the fact that no one came looking for him at the school, the last place he was known to be for three days, as much as being in the closet for the three days. I mean, presumably it was Janitor Bob that unlocked him there. Can you imagine your saver having to be fucking Janitor Bob? <laughs> hey, listen, after three days in the closet, I don't care if Lucifer himself came to rescue me or Abaddon. I'm sorry, Abaddon himself came to rescue me. I mean, just to, to go back in time. So like we're talking 2005, 2006, cell phones were a thing, but like, I don't know if maybe texting wasn't as prominent as it is now. I don't put it past like a Nikki Covington going out to the car, be like, oh, you know what? He decided he's going to spend the time in the library. He's going to study. I, I think that it would have been fully within the character of Nikki Covington to like dismiss the car, tell, telling the driver, you know, tell Mrs. Whitley that Malcolm decided that he's going to, you know, stay in and hunker down with his studies for the weekend. And I feel like Jessica would have bought that. I'm curious to learn if... Not that we need to, but in my head canon, I don't think that Jessica or Martin at any, well, Martin, I guess, was in Claremont by that point. I don't think Jessica turned and asked anyone, where's Malcolm, darling, at any point that weekend? Uh, or maybe not until she was headed back to the city at the end of the weekend. You know, like, get, oh, we should be dropping him to Westchester. <laughs> yeah. And, and motherfuckers, go take the Hampton Jitney. It's a rite of passage. Don't take a car. Don't take a private car out to the Hamptons. Go get on the Jitney. I mean... 
public transportation. Let, let's save the uh, let's save the uh, earth a little bit here. And also, just like you mentioned, like like a trek out to the Hamptons. Like I live on Long Island. Like I'm already a borough closer to the Hamptons or a county. I'm a county closer to the Hamptons, and it's still like one and a half to two hour drive on a holiday weekend. Oh hell no, Hampton ship me all the way because they get the HOV lane. Uh, yeah. Looking back at that conversation with Louisa and Jessica at, in Stately Whitley Manor, is it for you that Louisa was a skilled liar or was Jessica so willing to believe that this girl who maybe reflected Jessica, who Jessica feels like she was at that age, that she was just willing to believe whatever this girl said, as long as it wasn't a confession, that if Louisa had any kind of story that was going to point the finger at someone else, Jessica was willing to believe that story it's both i think louisa is a a skilled liar or at least can pass like a first pass yield of somebody like jessica who is interested in appearances she doesn't want to upset the apple cart she wants to maintain the status quo so i think jessica had her blinders and we heard this we heard this word blinders in uh was it episode one danny was saying something about blinders with malcolm over there at the about malcolm and gill about jessica and gill yeah yeah so I, I keep coming back to that word blinders because like i feel like we get these gates uh, these blinder gates at different points like with malcolm and martin there's there's blinders with uh with jessica and malcolm there's blinders jessica and the school there's blinders it was poor judgment on everybody's part in allowing jessica to be the one to quote-unquote interrogate louisa to uh, protect them from the high-priced lawyer and her ruthless father but i also think that jessica wasn't trying to actually dig too far to uncover anything within the school i think that it was just basically like a cursory conversation just to kind of get a feel for where things were and just to like point the the cops in a different direction but i also think that louisa is growing her psycho skills her her psychopathy skills and jessica was a willing victim of her lies so it was kind of both i guess to really answer like the first part of your question like you know is it an either or situation no i think it's a both situation I agree with all of that. Jessica sees what Jessica wants to see. She always looks at things subjectively instead of objectively. It causes, I think, more problems than it solves. I don't want to I don't want to dunk on her because I think there is a large part of her selfishness is motivated by trying to circle the wagons for her and her kids in a world where she is a status a high society member. And so there's always some level of scrutiny on that family Add in the Martin connection. And there's even more scrutiny on that family, even after 20 years, but whatever her motives, there's still a selfishness that seeps into everything she does, which colors and biases everything she takes in and everything she puts out, I think in the world. And I, and I think this conversation with Louisa, I mean, she turns and she starts to cry when she gets called on the cheating thing. I, I mean, I was expecting the acting coach to come out. Not that the actors did a good job. I think the actors did exactly what the script called for, but it was, again, it was playing on the sympathy of, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. I'm a victim, which, which honestly makes Louisa the maybe most psychopathic of anyone in the show i mean that's that's like a level of derangement that even martin martin doesn't hide behind fake tears when he goes to you know bleed a body dry i i think louisa is like a real buddy killer in her own right every psycho's got to start somewhere if every serial killer movie or tv show had a uh the the high school years 
I mean, shit, that could be an entire channel on cable network that the, like, I, I, I know you would subscribe. Oh my God. I know you would subscribe to that in, uh, in a heartbeat. You, you would cut the cord just to subscribe to that channel. Death at a young age. You know, we didn't get very much. We had no Ainsley. We had no GT uh, other than uh, the birth of his little baby boy. But we already talked about how it's going to be interesting going forward, how that colors or affects his storyline. But there was a little bit of Danny. Malcolm opens up to her in the school when they're looking at the trophies and stuff uh, about the trauma that happened to him. Does he have this conversation with JT if JT was the one that was there? Or is this a reserved for Danny conversation because of where him and Danny are in their friendship? I think this is reserved for her. I think that's an astute point that you're making because there is a different level of trust between these two. You know, we talk about us shipping them. So, you know, you have to have growing of trust between two people if they're going to become close. And if that if it's close as friends or close as something more, you do have to invest the emotional Currency, I guess, is, is I don't know if I'm saying that right, but like you do have to invest the the, the trust in order to see if your investment is going to make a return. Wow, that's a that's a deep metaphor there. <laughs> but I do feel that she's the only person, maybe outside of Gil, that would warrant that level of of trust. I think maybe he shares this this conversation with Gil, but maybe he relates it in a different way. He seems increasingly less guarded and much more transparent when he talks to Danny, and I think that's just a great development. I think that's just the show doing a really good job of organically building this friendship where they can be real with each other. I don't think he has this conversation. I don't think he opens up to JT JT this way, even though I think he sees JT as a friend more than a colleague at this point. I don't think he's comfortable with Adresa in that same way, even even when you take into account how Adresa feels about him. And Gil has a father figure aspect to him. Yeah, I think this is a very special kind of place that he shares with Danny, maybe with Ainsley, too. But yeah, I think it's rarefied air to get that kind of vulnerability in that way. Before we go, I think we just need to really finish up with Martin because Martin was the other big thrust of this episode when it wasn't Malcolm. It was really a Martin episode. This episode starts with a really elaborate dream escape sequence, basically where Martin escapes from Claremont into the basement of stately Whitley Manor, which how convenient would that be if it turned out the Milton's both built both Claremont and the house and was connected by a really long fucking tunnel that he could uh, just escape into the basement of his house. But then he finds a very happy Jessica to have him home, which is where you know that this is really just some kind of dream sequence. But then you also have kind of a sinister Malcolm with the slick back hair and the dark suit. And that's when it really comes off the rails for Martin. What is your dream analysis of this opening sequence? And where's Ainsley? Yeah, Ainsley was like the biggest missing link in this dream sequence for me. I'm like, okay, she didn't appear here. So like, what is the deal? But whatever. I'm sure that has is going to be answered in some way, shape or form. I feel like we're going to get like a big Ainsley episode coming up soon. But in terms of his dream sequence, my, my God, is this like his deepest desire? Like he still wants Jessica? I guess is that like, is that a relationship unfulfilled for him? Because, you know, she meets him with a drink and says, hurry, drink this because I want to go have sex. I don't know. I was feeling like this might be like his unresolved relationship with Jessica because obviously they're they're exes now because he is in a mental institution for the criminally insane. I was very interested to see that he broke into his old office where like we got the girl in the box sequence. Haven't seen that in a while. So like everything was just as he remembered it. So I was very interested to see that that this was his breakout dream sequence. 
Yeah, I think this is his innermost desires. I think he's super horny. He brings up Jessica and sex a lot. It probably comes up nine out of ten times that he talks about Jessica for more than a sentence. Sex in comes into it somehow. So he's super horny and he's super horny for Jessica, which I mean, I think that's great on one level that they that he still holds such a flame for for her. I don't think she probably says she feels the same way. But who knows? I mean, he's very charismatic. Maybe, you know, a little bit more of a beard trim. Oh, that was another thing, too, that tipped this off that this was a dream sequence. He was the most put together and cleaned up. I mean, he still had the big beard and he still had hair, but he was cleaned up in a way. He was manicured in a way that he has not been in Claremont in a very long time. So that yeah, his was, hair was brushed. His <laughs> hair was brushed and his beard was trimmed. There was no stray flyaway hairs coming out of his beard. We had a high school teacher who taught English. He was the worst teacher. He was the walking embodiment of an unmade bed, uh, just hair everywhere. And it was un- it was you were unable to tell if it was his own hair, if it was several animals hairs put together. And he wore a black vest every day and it had hair. It, it, it was I wanted to take a shower every time I left that class. And so often Martin looks like that when he's at Claremont. Absolutely. That's that is some in- imagery that gets conjured up for me. Uh, as oh. so. Anyway. Uh, yeah. So. I think I think the Jessica is he's horny and and Jessica is there and he think he still has a flame for her. I think he still loves her in his own psychopathic kind of way or, or sociopathic kind of way. I think he still loves Jessica and I think that's why he gets triggered and jealous so much whenever another man like Gil or Endicott come into the picture. Um, I don't think it's just machismo. I think it's actually like love romantic based emotion. I think Ainsley missing is significant because when you pair that together with the actual real life conversation that he has with Malcolm where he says you're the only one whose safety I wouldn't you know I wouldn't want to hurt or I couldn't hurt to the extent that it would cost me my freedom well you have another kid dude and and Martin doesn't choose Martin doesn't say things flipply or off the cuff that is Martin saying the real truth Martin doesn't really obfuscate he doesn't really lie like that he may manipulate the truth he may say things differently but when it comes to his family I think he's a pretty straight shooter so when he says that Malcolm is the most important one to him and his family I think he very much is omitting Ainsley from that and I think Ainsley missing from his dream sequence is a real big part of that which is interesting if she's the one who's destined to take over the family business of serial killing you know waiting for the entrance of deadline the serial killer (laughs) the the deadline killings you know it's going to be interesting what that relationship looks like there is this complicated relationship with Ainsley insofar as she was so young when he went away they don't really have a relationship Right. I mean, you know, when you're five, you're emotionally not evolved, whereas Malcolm was, what, eight or ten? Yeah. So, I mean, there's a there's a huge difference developmentally and in a connection and experience um, between a five and an eight or a ten year old. So there's just not a lot of foundation with Ainsley. And um, I feel like that might be more of why she's not figuring into his dream sequence, because when you're five, you're not really there a whole lot. You're playing with your toys. You're playing with your brother. You're off at kindergarten. You know, you're not really involved in the day-to-day workings, whereas Malcolm was old enough to go on camping trips with Martin, you know, albeit with, you know, junkyard killers. But there's just a different level of a relationship at that point. And then this was a moment of relationship frozen in time for the most part with, with Martin and Ainsley. There was very little 
that we've seen of them over the years. And basically she just came, you know, to do an interview with him in the jail last season. There wasn't a whole lot of substantive conversation between the two of them. So yeah, it is tough for her. I think being the other kid of a serial killer, because for whatever, whatever the relationship is between Martin and Malcolm, Martin has really latched on emotionally to Malcolm, even though Ainsley's the one who, like you said, is kind of following in his footsteps to the, to the letter. I think Martin is always going to be interested in what Malcolm is doing, whether Malcolm is solving murders or not. Because I think Malcolm, I think Martin is very invested in Malcolm as his son and as a person. I think because of the lack of relationship pre being committed to Claremont between Martin and Ainsley, I think Martin only really pays attention to Ainsley when she is showing signs of being in the family business, you know, when she's in the cell interviewing him and he sees some of the bloodlust signs, you know, when she slits Endicott's throat from ear to ear and he says, my girl, you know, I think that's the only time he's one of those dads with Ainsley when it comes to Ainsley, who only gets gets up for when she's doing something that interests him that's in his line of, of you know, interests, which is shitty and makes him I, I think he's a much worse dad to Ainsley than he is. To Malcolm in a lot of ways. <laughs> wow, that's that's saying a lot. <laughs> it does. It does. With the furthering of the Bible study with Friar Pete, Martin gets to the point where Mr. David literally is holding the final key to Martin's grand escape plan here. So, how far do you think that Martin is going to go to realizing his escape plan with regards to Mr. David? He was very callous and very indifferent in talking about Mr. David to Brother Daryl from the Bible study. Do you think that that's true, what he said about Mr. David to, to Brother Daryl? No. <laughs> no, I, I, I think he was putting on a show. I think he had made a decision that he needed to remove Daryl from the equation, that he was resting too many. I, I think he's willing to trust Friar Pete to a certain extent, but Martin has gotten where Martin is and has accomplished murdery wise what he has accomplished by doing things his own self and taking care of the details his own self and so i don't think from word from jump i think he's very uncomfortable about having to involve brother daryl in this escape plan in this exodus plan and so he quickly once he realizes that daryl has already gotten two of the three keys i think martin makes the calculated decision to remove Daryl from the scenario and is play acting here to convince Daryl to do whatever it takes to get Daryl to take the power from Daryl. I think that's the Mr. David conversation. I think that's the getting the shiv from him. All of that is, is all part of this scenario building to just to, to change the power dynamic and to make Daryl submissive to him, if not dead to him, versus Daryl being able to hold the power over him because now that he has the keys. And I say that because like you, I like the relationship of Mr. David and Martin. And I also believe Martin, I mean, he says Mr. David's become fond of me. I think that goes both ways. I think I think Martin looks to Mr. David not only as a friend, but I think he looks at him as almost as like a protector also. Well, I think Mr. David is, is a whoopee, a blanket for <laughs> Martin in a lot of ways in his time in Claremont. That when Mr. David is not there, things don't feel exactly right. You know, there's a little bit of OCD in Martin. And, it, you know, it's the same way that if a right angle is off to someone who likes neat piles, when Mr. David isn't there, Martin feels off. So I'd like to think, like you, that he 
wouldn't go so far as killing him, but maybe knocking him out and taking his key because he definitely has like a wild look in his eyes when he is praying at the end of the episode, staring at two of the three keys in uh, in the Bible that he uh, lifted off of that heathen Daryl who brought a weapon into the Bible study group. And, and not to mention Willie. Willie, the imaginary cellmate, was the one who actually lifted the, the keys, according to, oh to Daryl. There's so, there's so many great <laughs> characters inside of Claremont. That's a, that's a whole spinoff show. I mean, if Chris and Sam are ever looking for another idea, the the extended Prodigal Son universe is rife with characters inside oh, of Claremont. Tales from Claremont, that I will subscribe to ahead of the, uh, you know, psycho killer murder okay. or like high school origin stories. We're going to have to reach out to them. Maybe we could make that a, like a, a, a podcast series, like a scripted podcast series, Tales from, you just get people to come do line readings, Tales from uh, Tales from Claremont. Yeah, because I, I, I need the backstory on Friar Pete. I'm still waiting on that. Uh, the Friar Flangs. I mean, there, there's got to be an episode where that comes into play. Oh, I'm banking on it. Does Martin choosing the non-stabby option in his standoff with Daryl show actual character growth? I feel like there's a, there's a Martin that has existed at some point in his character arc where he stabs him in the carotid artery and like bathes in the blood of Daryl without even really hesitating, without even the setup and buildup that he gives Daryl the chance to hand over the keys without blood loss. And in the end, when he's faced because it's time to go, he puts down the weapon and actually instead he he sells out Daryl and has Daryl dragged away as Daryl screams about being a Judas and stuff as he's dragged away. Is this character growth? Yeah, I, I actually feel like it is because I feel in an older version of Martin, maybe pre the immersion with Malcolm, the emotional immersion with Malcolm, I feel like prior Martin would have definitely just shanked him, shivved him, whatever. Whereas we've been seeing this kinder, gentler Martin. He didn't kill Jerry Bear. I'm still out on the notion that he was out to kill Jerry. I was, I'm still kind of that he was just using him as a means to an end to get back his private cell. So I feel like this is definitely some some of Malcolm's humanity rubbing off on Martin in a way that I, I guess I've come to expect it, I guess, in a way. I don't know. I don't know if that's like the, the right way to, to kind of frame it. But I feel like if Martin doesn't grow as a character and if Malcolm doesn't grow as a character, then what's the point of their relationship? Like they have to imbibe some of the the better qualities, the better angels of their nature that's been like on people's mind lately. In order to to further the story, because it makes them more complex, I think, is if they take on these characteristics of each other, the the better angels, of, you know, of their nature, basically, that they move the needle in their character arc. It makes them more interesting because wouldn't that just be so cliche? Like, well, the serial killer just creates another victim as a means to an end. But also Martin's calculating. He knows that if he if he does shiv daryl that he's going to end up in solitary again that he this is not going to go the way that he needs it to go in order to make his escape plan happen so he needs to think in a smarter way he needs to think not just in the serial killer way but in like well how would malcolm do this like what would malcolm do i think it's definitely character growth because i think previous martin as calculating as he is has a bloodless impulsivity problem and so even if even if it was against his grander goal of eventually being able to escape from prison there i think there was a version of martin that has maybe gone by the wayside a bit that stabs and takes from Dar- stabs daryl and takes from him what he wants before he realizes or thinks through whether or not that's actually the right call to do here the fact that he thinks about it and i mean it's not an easy decision you can see in his eyes michael sheen is 
is doing such great face acting here. You can see in his eyes as he's as he's holding the shiv like you know between his praying palms. He's doing the he's doing the math. Do I stab him? Do I go? Mister David's calling. Like there's a lot of calculations. He's beautiful mind calculating the odds here of what he should do. But he chooses the smarter long play option, and I think that's very much a what would Malcolm have done kind of scenario. This is this is what we're talking about. This is them rubbing off on each other in a good way. He doesn't stab Daryl. Good job, Martin. I'm proud of you, buddy. <laughs> I want to see more of that. I want to see more of these two kind of growing, you know, through their interactions versus becoming worse people because of their interactions. But I also think that Martin, in, in one of his calculations, used Daryl's own words against him in damning any credibility that Daryl would have had. We talked about the cellmate, Willie, his imaginary cellmate that, you know, knows how to cut a man. And Daryl screaming that Martin is Judas. Judas is the one who betrayed Jesus. So, like, Daryl is already having some self-aggrandizement happening that is going to damage any anything that he's going to say about Martin and whatever plans or whatever they talked about because it can be dismissed as a delusion on Daryl's part. So it was, I think it was also another very calculated step on Martin's part to, to use Daryl's own shortcomings, I guess, against him. That takes us to the end of our discussion of this episode, Alma Mater, episode three of season two. But we have so much more in store for you because you'll notice we didn't really talk about Adrisa at all in this episode. And man, what a great episode to have Keiko come on for because Adrisa uh, had some great moments in tonight's episode. So we didn't talk about it here because we're going to talk about it with her in the interview that you're about to listen to right now. Welcome back to The Surgeon Files, your unofficially official Prodigal Sum podcast. Joining us tonight, we have Dr. Adrisa Tanaka herself, the one, the only, Keiko Agena. Keiko, thank Yay! you so much for coming on and joining us tonight. Oh my God, Yay! I'm finally here. Yay! Yay! We're, we're together. <laughs> Thank together, but me. apart, but together, but we're here. Which is, doesn't that feel like that's been the case for a year now? Uh, I'm not like ready for it to be March again, was, guys. I'm really not. I know. My brain can't handle it. People coming up with, you're starting to see all the year anniversary. This is not an, I mean, I believe in anniversaries. They're important to celebrate. This is not an anniversary. We should be like, I don't know. What What do you get? A new mask? Is that the anniversary gift? For- no. I think so. For, for COVID, oh, yeah. No. You get a new mask. It's like paper. Uh, you know, you get like your yeah. Tiffany. Oh, comes, no. Yeah, right, right, right. Like a blue box. <laughs> You know, a little blue box with a mask in it, something like that. I don't know. You get like a mask holder, you know? (sighs) Yeah. I'm going to tell you off the top of the podcast here at Pod Clubhouse, you have a tremendous following. You are probably one of our favorite actors because we all go back. We all go back way, way, way back to Gilmore Girls with you. So so we're trying very hard not to ask a thousand Gilmore Girl questions. And (laughs) and we're going to hold off until the very end if we have time to just for a couple of those. Okay, okay. There was lots of fangirling when we when this moment was announced. Yes. No more so than me. Uh, We were very excited. We were very excited. So, yeah, uh, all of the partners here at the clubhouse are all big, like, Gilmore Girls fans. I've been to two Gilmore Girl fan fests in Connecticut. You know, like, when oh, they shut up, like, shop right. and Caroline and Paul, my partners at the clubhouse, like, they've been there, like, five years running consecutively. Stars Hollow, you know, and Connecticut, like, you know, sets up, like, Stars Hollow. Yeah, big, big fans. Yeah, big fans. oh, so um, you're serious. Yeah, that's commitment. So this is a very safe space. So you can you can open up to us, whatever you want to do. So. Okay. Thank you, Michael. <laughs> 
Let's start at the very beginning because we didn't get to have you on in season one because we weren't doing this podcast then. Mm-hmm. How did you come about the role? Tell us about the audition process so to get cast as Adresa. Uh, well, it was uh, in the middle of pilot season, and so there are roles coming at you fast and furious. This was at the end of a particularly a busy week, and I remember thinking, "Wow, this is uh, she's so quirky." And uh, I know that in the pilot that you see, there's only one scene, but the audition. Uh, material there were two scenes and the second scene was even a little quirkier and had more about her obsession with the surgeon himself as well as spilling uh some some food off on on her lab coat that she uh that she she actually licks off of it but in any case <laughs> <laughs> but i thought this would be such a fun person to play i hope i get a chance to to play her it, it was great now normally you don't get a lot for audition season especially if people don't know you don't get a ton of time with the sides beforehand maybe a day maybe two right right how do you how do you take that and kind of internalize it so quickly to do adresa is a she's a force of nature she's a whole personality she's not just lines did, did it just click right away did you have an idea of who she was right away you know, I think it was the it was both of the scenes together in that I thought um, it's always fun to play people who are stretched. Off of the sides, I could tell that she's very good at one thing and very bad at another. You know, she's she's very competent at her job and in science, and she's very capable. But she's she's just a goo. You know, she just kind of loses it <laughs> in front of uh, Malcolm, or at least that's the way I read the character. I, I thought just knowing those two things that was enough to wrap that character around. And then a lot of the other things we find out about Adresa sort of come as we go along. But I, I thought that that little nugget of information that she's great at something and terrible at something else, I thought, is enough to uh, to stretch that character and have a lot of fun with her. I love that. I mean, I, I think yeah. it'd be hard pressed to find someone else that kind of fills the role just the way you've created her. <laughs> when it comes to like backstory now, like you get cast when it comes to backstory, is that something for all your characters that matters a lot? Or do you just kind of take it as it is on the page and just do whatever's there? Like how much how much building world building do you do for your characters? Or did you do for Adresa when you when you start playing her? I do a lot. I kind of do a lot no matter um, what my time frame, which makes it terrible for auditions because uh, my heart breaks. I mean, I really, I kind of fall in love with them. I kind of, I know what their parents were like. I mean, I know what, you know, I I invest so much in it. So that's sort of the thing that I love about getting to play a character that is long lasting is that I can stay with them and I don't have to, you know, they don't die. It sounds a little weird, but it's painful. It's painful to, to, to lose that person because I care about them so much. Even if you're, you're only spending a day with them. I, I, I don't know. I guess the answer to your question is, yeah, I, I start, sort of start world building as soon as I see the paper and with good writing, it's, it's a lot easier and you kind of get lost in it quicker. And, you know, even with prodigal son, I mean, right off the page, you can, there's so much happening um, with all of the characters and you can and you can feel that with the way that they they wrote it and so with the juice i kind of yeah i sort of started are chris and sam the kind of creator showrunners that you can go and they want to hear like they want to hear your thoughts like frank was telling us last episode he came with so many pages they thought maybe he was trying to do a backdoor pilot for himself for, for <laughs> uh and so and so it, it, which was very so funny but the idea you know but some people you know it's every, yeah. some people can be precious or not how is it is it a collaborative experience on, on the show with that kind of thing yeah right off the bat i will say it has been so welcoming with chris and sam and um 
it's exciting because I have this thing called Idrisa thoughts, where it's an email thread that I kind of every so often, if I have something that just can't leave my brain, I'll kind of throw it in there. Or, or, or once I even did a little video, I kind of recorded myself, <laughs> which, which exists somewhere, but, um, but that I sent to a couple, a couple of writers and Chris and Chris and Sam of, of just, uh, uh, of a scenario of Idrisa talking to Malcolm actually is in this video, but it also talks a little bit about her backstory and, and, and how I saw it. And what's great about them is that they know that I'm not going to be crushed if they don't choose something that I'm pitching. I mean, we're all, we're all pitching all of the time. You know, that's the thing I think that's with a healthy work environment is that you're like, well, what about this? You know, and, and, and it just be, becomes part of the, um, part of the pot, you know, the soup and that that's, they're, they're great about, uh, you know, encouraging that. You know, and you're the one who lives in Idris's head, right? So it's only natural that you're going to want to share some of your insights into her. So her being yeah. a medical examiner, you know, that role in and of itself, that profession comes with a certain amount of jargon, like chloramine trihydrate. Are you impressed? <laughs> right, yeah, Are you impressed? Yeah. I did some homework for that. Nice <laughs> for job, t- Good for job. tonight's. Yeah, so chloramine trihydrate for tonight's episode. Once you were cast in this role, did you do any research into the medical examiner field you know i did less with that than i did about um the part that's more fun for me about diving into the backstory and relationships uh, but part of that is also because we were spoiled we had a um fabulous medical examiner that was on set so i kind of just peppered him the entire pilot with uh, questions about what it's like and i'll email him sometimes if i have a question about a certain certain thing but what what was fun for me besides the um you know what's accurate or not is the the feeling that i got from him of how he actually got a lot from him but but how he he felt about the job i think his point of view about what it means to be a medical examiner actually informed a lot of my choices of uh, how I crafted the role of Idrisa based off of my conversations with him. Well, that kind of actually dovetails into my next question. In season one, you know, Idrisa and your crush or her crush on Malcolm, it was often used for comedic relief. But over the course of the season, (laughs) there was kind of the birth of a real friendship between the two of them. And in particular, Idrisa became someone that Malcolm could be himself unguarded and without judgment and without being worried that they're going to have to wear body armor if he falls asleep. You know, she, she being so quirky herself, <laughs> yeah. the, the weirdest parts about him, it, it's clear, are the parts that she loves the most about him. Without spoilers, you know, is, is that a, a relationship that we can expect to see maybe more develop in season two? Oh, that's a good question. I mean, I think that... The Malcolm Idrisa relationship does, has kind of shifted over time. I think it inevitably continues to do that. It's one of those dangerous things because you don't want to lose what makes it fun. You know, that she's so uncomfortable (laughs) around him. But, you know, Chris and Sam are honest showrunners. And so the honest truth of it is that the, you know, that relationship will change. I love it. I mean, I, I think it's fun to kind of explore new avenues. The thing about Idris is that she accepts him, you know, a hundred percent. Every everything about him, she she accepts and loves, and 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 for good or bad, because he's not exactly a hundred percent healthy person. But she doesn't, you know, she doesn't judge that. You could see she clearly loves his big brain and the way oh, it yeah. works. I mean, <laughs> yeah. Uh, like their yeah. for their first date may involve scalpels and lobotomies. Like you know, it's a oh, for sure. oh there's going to be a conversation about formaldehyde and you know different tech 
techniques and things like that. Yeah, for sure. That's her favorite thing. She loves to watch him work. When I, when I mean, I think I think when Dan, when Teresa and this I, this isn't you know I don't necessarily haven't had so many conversations about this, but Teresa's perfect date with Malcolm exactly involves those things. It's not obviously she's very attracted to them, but she doesn't daydream about like the um, French dinner with the candelabra and uh, and a long evening gown, you know. Right. <laughs> or or she does. It's it, in a morgue, it's, you know. <laughs> it's, the candelabra yeah, yeah, sit up right, on a right, body right. on a slab kind of thing. Yeah, that'll be the appropriate right. backdrop. So Teresa has many side interests. <laughs> from what you just started describing. Yeah. And then even in this season now, we saw her, her light bondage phase in Hoboken. Oh, right. Tonight, you know, we, we get the ins and outs of Idrissa's knowledge about stimulating childbirth. So... Right. <laughs> yes. oh, I love it. Is she is she bringing out like a new puzzle every week? Is there some sort of what you have in the backstory? Like, are you bringing this out or is this more stuff that's written in for you? I think it's a little bit of both because... <laughs> Each each time there's a little jewel, like a little nugget like that. It's such a it's such a great gift. And then you, you as an actress, you're trying to like weave it into to what you already know about her. It's like the fact that she was into cuddle parties, you know, like that's just so fun. And the and the, <laughs> to be honest, like the bondage conversation, we uh, there were some emails. I'm not answering this very well, but there are back and forth conversations about you know what what is Adrisa into, like what what is she, what is she what is she about? And I don't know that either of us, any of us. I fully know, but I feel like each week we find out a little bit more. She's got a lot going on, I think. It gels so nicely for us every week, for sure. Okay. Okay, good, good, good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this episode tonight was a great example of when Adresa leaves the morgue she always seems to find herself deep in the action of the episode at some point. You know, things things, things oh, yeah. rarely go simple for her when she's just kind of on site or when she gets involved. So, like, tonight you get punched by Louisa and you have a great line about her heavy hand. And that's yeah. how you, well, you think she's the one who did it. Last season, you had the funeral director's episode, um, uh, The Death's Door, where you yeah. end up, you know, having to fight the psychotic, grieving funeral director woman. Yeah. Do you like those kinds of episodes where you get into the mix or is the joy of Adresa when she's just kind of picking up a decapitated head and we're looking at a desanguinated body in a church like what what what's the script that makes you kind of get excited the most uh well I love both of it I love both sides of it but I was thrilled that she didn't stay in the morgue and I, there's a there's a world you know where that's the only place where she lives and you only uh, see her there and because they were building um i don't know if this is entirely part of it but they didn't build the morgue until um i don't know season six i mean uh, episode six in season one or, or something very late because of just time schedule etc and we didn't go back to where we shot the pilot which was at an actual morgue thank god thank you jason sokolov <laughs> who built the morgue <laughs> i was i like literally hugged him when he said when he told me that they were actually going to build me me a me a morgue on, on you know the sound stage, a nice clean sound stage. But because of that, part of that is you do. We kind of had to see her out in the field, and I was so thankful that that became part of you know I don't know what episode it was is two or three where she you know you, you she had the snake and and you she's at the crime scene. The episode that we just saw uh, of her coming out of the water, you know, I think it's fun to see her 
like a like a different entrance for her every time as much as we can just put her in these awkward positions is, yeah it makes me happy Idrisa fills a really interesting role for me on this show because her her role seems to be to break up the tension with the quirky comments with the the, the things that kind of get, you know gather the side glances like what did she just say but this also <laughs> adds such an invaluable amount of information to the case every week so how do you navigate this fine line between humor and murder and having to turn on this dramatic switch and just making it work well i think the humor comes from her intensity and her her not being aware of certain things which is i think is always always fun but i i think that the reason why it's fun to switch back and forth in between a a very serious somber moment and something that's comedic is that everything is actually it's rooted in something real so that the comedy comes because we're taking, we're turning up the, the volume on, on it, but that um, you can do that easily and then turn it back down because the root of it is actually a, a genuine, honest feeling or a point of view about a person. And that's what I think is fun, not only for um, that I get to do, but especially starting in this season, I feel like everybody is really able to um, to play in that in-between space. I just loved uh, episode one of this season. It was just like felt like everything was hitting in that way. Does that make sense? I think I think the fact that you guys in the opening shot of the season premiere where there's the tether line, right, where you're kind of it's like like an all all hands on deck kind of thing. But, you know, there there's always this worry about a sophomore slump. But there you guys are, this whole core group all working together, seamlessly cracking jokes. But it's also tension, like you're trying to keep Malcolm from falling off a building and, you know, you got a guy with a knife there. And then but you're able to also casually toss out your light bondage phase in Hoboken and you're good at knots you know it was great it was it was it was this immediate reassurance especially coming out of COVID or still in COVID but the show is post-COVID especially with the BLM storylines and the police uh, brutality storylines it it was a nice you know kind of an exhale to have you guys all back really um, so thank you on behalf of the fans yeah. i mean it, it's nice to oh, have thanks. you guys back in our living rooms yeah thanks thank the fans i mean <laughs> thank, thank, thank the fans and all their friends that they will t- talk about this show because i love it and i hope we get to do it for a long time us too like I said, this was uh, this was one of those episodes where Adresa steps out of the morgue and actually gets involved in it. And you, you mentioned it before, popping up in the pool. Tell us about shooting that pool scene with the with the tankless scuba mask, and it, it, it looked intricate with the with the set on the bottom of the pool. Is can you take us behind the scenes a little bit and talk about filming that scene? Oh sure, and I don't know I don't know if I'm supposed to talk about it, but because um, you can see it only a little bit, but the the water was green. I know they changed it with special uh, effects it looked green to, in to our screener green. yeah oh did it yeah yeah yeah, yeah. but so we might not little, have had the color um, locked yeah we, so <laughs> yeah but but i think it, no but it was actually more green when we were filming do, oh, do you know, do you know so, so i think they're changing <laughs> that yeah yeah <laughs> yeah you had a scuba mask on <laughs> I know. Uh, yes. And then, you know, because Tom has to dive into it, too. But I think what it was is it wasn't something wrong with the water. It's because they put the um, furniture in there and the furniture, uh, the, the the dye, you know, it's not that kind of furniture. is not supposed to be in a pool with chlorine and all that stuff. So it, it leaked and it turned the entire pool green. Uh, yes. So there was so was, there was that aspect. We also had a um, uh, so we had a stunt person that was there to do some of this, the, the swimming because my um, my mask wouldn't secure 
close enough to my face for me to do the diving without it getting all, you know, wetting my face. Uh, but because I grew up in Hawaii, there's like all these people, extra people here, but I'm a really good swimmer actually. So <laughs> I just kind of stayed in the pool the whole time. And they're like, Oh, the, I think the, the safety person was like, Oh, I heard you grew up in Hawaii. Yeah. I don't, I don't, I don't need to worry about you. You're, you're fine. So I just like just pretty much stayed in the pool the whole time. What in between, you know, what we're doing takes and stuff. I love it. Well, I was going to say, is that, I mean, is that a terribly long day of like, because you have to set up, you have to do covered shots, but I guess every, not every, not a lot in the pool was moving, but how, how long was that shoot day for you? Were you all, were you terribly wrinkled when you came out of the water? Oh, you're, yeah, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. But it's like a good, like a long swimming day. It's pretty much the same. I was like, yeah. It's uh, it's fine. Going using the restroom though, that's a tough thing because getting that wetsuit on and off, uh, that's yeah. what it takes. That's what's exhausting. You know, I burned a few calories doing that. Oh, you gotta love a job that lets you get your cardio in and pay you for it. So yes. Yes. Uh, well, you you know you also earned your money in this episode because you you took a little bit of a punch. You had a little bit of a fight scene, a, a one sided fight scene, to right. be sure, with <laughs> with Louisa the bully. You don't have you don't have a lot of roles, I don't think, going through here. I mean, BB and having watched you for years on TV, you don't do a lot of combat stuff. Like, what does that look like, or is that a stunt double kind of there? So so you know you don't get hurt. That kind of interaction. What is that like to film? Uh, yeah. Well, we did have a stunt person for Louisa for the actress who's playing Louisa fabulous actress by the way she's um lily ganser um but yeah we well the other challenge is that that was at the very end of the day you know with filming a lot of times it's like you have all the time in the world before lunch because everything is like everywhere getting the perfect shots you know we have a lot of time and then towards the end of the day you've got to rush because you got to make your day and this was one of those situations where i'm like oh please let us let us you know get everything that we need to do and i think that it came out great but it is one of those things where you you know thank goodness we have a good stunt coordination team and uh and great people because we you know you, we didn't have a lot of time to make sure that that looked right that is all so fantastic i just love when you take <laughs> behind the scenes just to you know sort of see how to, a day in the life right of, right of keiko and adrisa you know you've talked about her backstory and how you crafted and you've got pages of it and videos apparently so yeah. <laughs> how would you say that you're most like adrisa and how do you differ from adrisa Okay, well, I know this is going to break your heart, Sheila, because I know you're a true crime fan, <laughs> but I am not. I'm like, really, really, really not. I can't watch any of it. I am so the opposite in that way. It freaks me out if I think about it too much. So I would say that that's the main thing that I am uh, dislike Adresa or unlike Adresa, not dislike. I love Adresa. I don't dislike anything about Adresa. <laughs> But the, the way that we're similar probably is that I love my job and, obs- and ob- is obsessed about my job as much as she, do- as she does. That's fantastic. And she loves Malcolm and I'm completely in love with Tom. No, I'm just kidding. That's, that's not yes. <laughs> my husband is in the next room. That is not true. But completely um, platonic love. I get it. Did, did you guys get yes. ma- did you guys get married during quarantine? I don't think so. <laughs> Yes, they got married during quarantine. Good for Tom. Uh, right. Did okay. you, is that what you're talking about? Uh, yeah, that yes. is what I'm talking about. I mean, I, I, I haven't. I, I I'm it. still working on a 500 piece puzzle. I haven't done anything in quarantine, <laughs> so I, I'm much less. I know. Protect- there's some, I need there's to do Keiko again. Together. I don't know about you guys. This is, this is my quarantine win. That's the thing. That's the thing. <laughs> but we haven't we haven't gotten a drink with Keiko yet, though. And that's, Not yet. That's, that's coming. Not yet. That's when we peak Not in quarantine. 
So yes. I'm going to take a little side tangent here into sure. Gilmore Girls. We're all big fans here, not just me, not just Sheila, but everyone in Pod Clubhouse is. So I'd be remiss to say that you were an absolute fan favorite, and I know you still get plenty of people you know calling out lane and talking about lane what does it mean after so many years from the show premiering especially to have people kind of resonate and lane still resonate and people still talk about the show maybe you've walked down the street people call out lane you know i i don't know what your experience yeah. is but how does that make you feel when you know people are still talking about the show especially when it hit netflix and it's kind of had now a second life what does that mean to you and to hear fans talk about the show like it's new well, well a couple of things happen i think when and the love for the show and the fan interaction uh, really uh, came out, I, I think, also with the um, of Austin Television Festival that kind of led to the the reboot or not reboot, but the, um, the the year in the life. The epilogue. Yes. Yeah. Catching up with it. That was big. That was huge. You know, that 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 happened. It's completely surprised me, blew me away. And then. The fact that we have a 20-year reunion, I'm not reunion, but the anniversary recently, the fact that people still cared about it, and it really hit me that that was 20 years ago that we premiered, and the and the, the amount of love that people have for it, it, it was like, wow, it took a lot, a long time for me to really appreciate how special that is. You know, that, that doesn't, that doesn't happen. And for our show, it was, it was sort of a slow, a slow thing. It wasn't as, we weren't as known when we were on the CW and WB. We're one of those shows that maybe you know about but not everybody did i think it was really a lot later and uh, with netflix that became more of a, a of a thing where if you said the name of the show that people have at least heard about it it was wild and it was a it, it took a while so it's, it's been this kind of um rolling thing it's it blows my mind did you guys have any idea when you were making the show while you're making it do you ever think to yourself, this is something people are going to be talking about in 15, 16 years? Oh, no, not at all. But I do know that when I read the script, I remember thinking, oh, my gosh, this is a crazy good script. You know, that pilot episode. And um, and that was obviously before I knew I got it. And I just thought, wow, whoever gets this part, because I did not think I would get it. This is great good good for them <laughs> you know good for that girl who's probably 10 years younger than i you know i was at the time i auditioned for it but so i knew that the script was special but you know like i said we were on a small network people didn't admit that they liked it because it had girls in the title you know nobody it was like the secret shame show that people said that they liked if they did say that they liked it we were always this thing where where i felt like oh i, I don't know maybe people will appreciate us it always felt like it could just disappear and nobody really know about it that much so to, to get to this point, I was like, wow, thank goodness that didn't happen. To hear you talk about someone else playing that role, it's kind of like the idea of someone else getting, you know, Adresa. You, you are, <laughs> you you just kind of embody the characters, even even in the smaller arc stunt work uh, that you've done in like other shows. You just better call Saul and, you know, in Dirty John, the first few episodes you were in Dirty John, the 13 Reasons Why, you're just, you're, I don't mean to blow smoke up your ass, but you just kind of, you you really, you really make the role your own. It's, it's, you're one of those people that's hard to picture someone else playing the roles because I think you embody it so well. I'm blushing. That is very sweet. Thank you so much for saying that. That's really nice. You know, from a Gilmore Girls standpoint, just when, when it was airing, there was a lot of conversation. Like I was just, you know, starting out in the job force and things like that. And it was one of these like water cooler kind of conversations the morning after. Like there was like the Gilmore oh, Girls clatch. Like the people would be there and they'd be talking like, oh my God, you know what happened? It was definitely like a fan favorite in a lot of circles. I So I just want to give you that you know, sort of feedback. Oh, that's good. <laughs> 
good. This is what our podcast would look like, Keiko. We would just say nice things about you while we all drink. Yeah. So okay. I, I mean, I don't know that it gets better Probably than good that. Good for my ego. <laughs> right. That's what we do. We're good for the ego and the soul. We're like chicken I, soup, but next level. Like like alcohol for the soul. I love it. <laughs> Yes. So just a question about Adresa that, you know, this is hard hitting journalism right here. What, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> what is her favorite lollipop flavor from Malcolm? Oh, from Malcolm. Um, so like, you know, he, he hands out the dum-dums. Oh, all over the yeah. So what would be her favorite lollipop oh. flavor? Oh, cherry for sure. Yes. I figured it would just be anything that he handed her. <laughs> Well, this is true. Although, although I do think that because he gave her cherry once, she would be confused if he gave her a different flavor. Like that's mine. Like that's I think mine. she would need to process that the, of the of the of the why. But yeah, yeah. Though the, uh, Malcolm strictly is the kind of person who actually doesn't just willy nilly hand out flavors, though. I, I'm positive he's probably done a profile on Adresa and, and, and came to the conclusion that his best guess was that she liked cherry more than grape or blue flavor or any of the other dum-dum flavors that they have. Right. Although I do think that Idrisa probably would um, would cal- make some kind of calculation in her mind of, of why that the fact that he gave her grape now was just an evolution of their uh, growing relationship. <laughs> and that, 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 like you've reached that the next the grape level. stage now. Yes. Yes. Like a video game. <laughs> And she's she's moved up or something. We played a little thought experiment in the first episode, Sheila and I did, because it was a post-COVID world and there were some references to Jessica and Ainsley having quarantine together. We talked about who we would quarantine with from the show if you had the chance to. And you were in the running. You I ultimately didn't pick you because I mm-hmm. don't think I could have hung with you for so long. I think mm-hmm. I, I think mm-hmm. I had decided that I would have been too square for Adresa um to, to hang with for the length of quarantine. But uh, who would you want to uh quarantine with if you had to go live with someone from the show for a year? Uh you can answer as yourself or you can answer as Adresa. <laughs> okay. If I had to quarantine for a year, I mean I think Idrisa would have to say Malcolm. I mean, I, I I think no matter how uncomfortable that made her feel, I think I think she would definitely want that. I don't know if it would be good for her blood pressure, but um, well, I mean, think, I think, think about the romantic think, dinners oh. in front of the murder wall. I mean, just the murder yeah. weapon wall. <laughs> just picnics every night. Just some nice blankets uh, spread yes. out. Actually, that is yeah. That's isn't that lovely. Oh my gosh, that would be great. Tell me okay. about your scimitar days, Malcolm. I want to hear about when you used yeah. that in your Harvard fencing. Tell me. I, that would be great. I think she would never be bored. I think she would be fully entertained for the entire year. I don't think she would stop smiling for the entire for 300 Oh no, her days. face would just be like locked yeah. in a smile joker-like. Oh, oh I think it would be great. I personally would quarantine with Lou Diamond Phyllis because he's an excellent cook. Ooh, he's oh. amazing. Yeah, and his wife, Yvonne, is great as well. <laughs> So um, that's that's my answer for that. Oh, man, do definitely find yourself someone that can cook for a year. Yeah. That is that is an important thing. Although I guess I answered as the actor, but we 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 assume that Gil can cook too, right? Are we guessing that? I oh think my so. God! Yeah, he's got game. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I think, his, I think that's in his skill set. Yes. If he fancies turtlenecks. He's got some. He's got some game that he's got some. Yeah. You know, like kitchen skills. I'd say. Yeah. He read the book on Got Game like a long time ago and has just yeah. been honing that skill set. I think mm. for a long time. Yeah. 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 For sure. For sure. So one thing our lovers are our lovers our listeners our lovers, our lovers <laughs> okay. we're taking us to nice. next level. This is Prodigal Son After Dark. Um, <laughs> one thing our listeners love and we do too is kind of going behind 
behind the scenes. So I want to ask you if there is a particular moment or scene or memory from set, whether it's an actual scene you played or just something that happened while you guys were in production that you could share for us uh, that comes to mind. Oh, well, um, uh, we did have a, oh goodness, whose birthday was it? It was last year and this was back when we could see each other in person back when that was possible um when it was i think it was michael and bellamy's and Luz maybe birthday they had like some party where they did karaoke oh that sounds and wild. so it is thrilling to find out who can sing kevin one of our people from second thing and you know who else uh tom has a great voice um it's, it's not frank's, fair he's got too it's, many it's, things it's going really, on it's really it is actually not fair it that's true that's not fair. <laughs> what did I say? But he was, <laughs> that was great. Plus, a lot of um, like the one of the fun times that uh, that the four girls went out to brunch. We went out to brunch once early in season one. That was fun too. I like that stuff. You're making me wistful for and times. with Bellamy. I know, right? Yeah, Remember yeah, that? All these times, oh, it's like man. all these before times. You know, it's BC uh, before, before COVID. Before BC COVID. before COVID. Drinks in person. One day we'll get there again. Or or green screens for Zoom calls will just become so immersive. It'll be like you're there. <laughs> you know. We're just this moving towards like a ready player one thing where we all live in a virtual reality, you know. And this took like a really wistful tone. It's like we're, a dark turn. We're here. all just kind of sighing, looking off to the side now. So it's yeah. great. I think I think we're just about out of time with you, unfortunately. So okay. uh, Sheila, do you have one final question you want to ask Akiko? When is the spin-off show coming for Adresa? I I <laughs> Love some, like, I would love some like long walks in the park with Adrisa and just learning the quirks because I feel like I'm a fountain of knowledge and useless or useful depends on the, the situation. But I would just love to know like when the, the Keiko files or the Adrisa files are coming out. Right. Just Adrisa thoughts. Just yeah, like deep thoughts with Adresa. Listen, thoughts with Listen, you know, shoot me a text. You know, send me an email. We'll hop on. We'll record your thoughts, and you can have like a, you could have like a running diary of your like Adresa a daily thoughts. affirmation, yeah. like the daily affirmation that shows up in the nice. show. We could do some Adresa affirmations. Like or do... SNL had uh, deep thoughts with Jack Handy in like the nineties. Right. You can have like Adresa thoughts. I and... would so much prefer that. Let's work on this, people. Let's make really, this happen. I don't sleep. I'm available twenty four hours a day. You you just you know you wake up awesome. in the middle of the night. I could be your dream journal. You just done. hop on. We'll record it. Done. <laughs> done. 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 Love it. Love it. Look how productive we are being. I'm so productive. Guys. We are solving oh the God. world's problems. We, uh, we're doing it. We're creating things. We are creating Fox's Tuesday night block. We are the new Shonda Rhimes here, people. Hell yeah. Great. Wait, great. I do have one final question. What is your favorite drink? Yes. Your favorite alcoholic drink. So this way, the next time we can come prepared. Right. Well, uh, Tito's vodka straight on the rocks is probably the honest answer. Um, That's my girl. Sometimes I like Grey Goose now. I kind of mix it up. But I love vodka. I used to be, um, I used to, well, like Dirty Martini vodka or uh, or a lemon drop. Oh, my gosh. But this is, of course, like 10 years ago. But I used to drink, I used to go nuts on those lemon drops back in the sweet and sour days. Yeah, oh, le- lemon yeah. drops, like, those those sneak up on you. Yeah, lemon drops, they you know, do, right? you, you, you don't even remember when you had the first 15. And, <laughs> and the sun is coming up and you're in Vegas and you're married to a pig. And it's it's mm. very awkward, very mm. awkward at brunch the next day. So, yeah. <laughs> lemon drops. Uh, I, I actually we'll, we'll hook you up with a therapist okay for that i'm never no. alone i have i have tito i have a goose i'm all good 
I've got a whole line of scotches. Yeah, you got the pig, right? Exactly. You know, it's cheaper to keep her, right? She's she lives a long time and she's very smart and a and a cleaner animal than you would imagine. Absolutely, Keiko. Thank you so much for coming out and hanging with us. I hope we get you back again this season. I hope we get you back all the time because we would just love to hang out with you more. Let's do it. Agreed. Great. Well, thank you. Uh, Keiko Gendo, thank you so much for coming out and talking with us tonight. Guys, thank you for listening to us. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to The Surgeon Files, your unofficially official Prodigal Son podcast. And uh, we'll talk to you next week. Thanks so much for listening. All right, folks, we're back here. We're in the end game. We're wrapping up this episode. I just want to give a big shout out to Keiko. I want to give a big shout out to the uh, PR folks at Fox that are being so awesome in helping us arrange these interviews. It's great working with them. This is the second show, actually, we've gotten to work with Fox over uh, at Pod Clubhouse. So I really appreciate that relationship uh, and the trust that they're putting in us in, you know, handing us these wonderful actors and, and creatives to, to talk to. So big yeah, thank you. And furthering their stories. It's great. Yeah, big thank you to everyone. Uh, I, I can't wait to have her on again so we can bring you more live Adresa Corners because I think she is just so goddamn entertaining. And it's so much fun to kind of pick her brain and, and you know, go go behind, uh, go behind the scenes with Adresa. Thank you, Keiko, again for, you know, spending time with us. Mike, we yeah. did not we did not really discuss the murder weapon tally here. Oh my goodness! Yes, uh, so we had a couple of non-traditional weapon. I guess a shiv is is a traditional prison weapon, but it never actually gets used. Uh, so attempted, it, attempted murder weapon tally as well. I guess we can label sure. attempted as well. Yeah, I mean, it was a weapon brought to a to brought to bear. You know, uh, whether or not it was successful is really neither here nor there. Uh, hit us with this week's murder tally. So we had chloramine trihydrate, which is the poison that was used to poison uh, Headmaster Brumbach, which was also uh, the document um, preserving agent. And uh, there was a conservator iron. Well, it wasn't really a murder weapon. It was more of an escape weapon. And then there was also an attempted murder by turkey sandwich. You have to be why I mean, this is why you have to be careful of who prepares your food. When you are disdainful of the children that you are teaching, you probably shouldn't be eating the food that they prepare for you, <laughs> especially especially coming off of, you know, the headmaster recently being found dead in the pool. I, I think I'm, I'm going to take a Mad-Eye Moody approach and drink from a hip flask and only prepare my own food. I think that's a very good point. And then also we also have attempted murder by document vault, like a very Da Vinci Code style document vault that they get locked into. So attempted murder by document vault as well great little line about the poison with martin made me laugh out loud when he says that malcolm should have come to him from the very start because he's he's actually very knowledgeable of uh oxidizing poisons uh martin martin has such varied interests uh it's <laughs> varying mo's i'd say i, I mean he that he's a diy show that i would definitely watch on cable television you know martin martin explains how to do things would be an excellent show to watch you know this week we're going to make we're going to show you some basic compounds to make a really effective poison that leaves no traces <laughs> Guys, thanks so much for listening to The Surgeon's Files, your unofficially official Prodigal Son podcast. And we can't wait to uh, talk to you next week. Thanks so much. If you could head on over to wherever you get your podcasts from, from Apple Podcasts or Stitcher, wherever, to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast so that other people can get as much enjoyment out of the show as you do. And if you could also leave us five stars, that would be greatly appreciated. Thank you so very much. Thank you for listening. This has been an original Pod Clubhouse production. 
Pod Clubhouse is a podcast network dedicated to encouraging collaboration among podcasters and friends to bring a fresh voice and diverse perspective on a wide array of content. Please visit and leave a comment for us at podclubhouse.com. Rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast feeds on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Pod Clubhouse. Our DMs are always open, and we'd love to hear from you.